Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we transfer weird and wonderful science via a third party into your ears. On this edition, Niraj Lal talks about the social consequences of technology. But first up, here's news of technology to control society. Financial abuse for everybody. The Australian government is in the process of changing social security payments from real money over to store credit at just two supermarket chains, creating a captive market. Originally, the government suspended the Racial Anti-Discrimination Act so that they could apply these extreme restrictions on spending only to Aboriginal communities as the basics card. People complained that this was racist, so the government decided to roll the card out to everybody as the cashless debit card, only targeting the poor people. The Indu company that has the exclusive contract was run by a former National Party minister, Larry Anthony, and still gives big donations to the National Party. Mining billionaire Andrew Forrest, who's a big donor to the Liberal National Coalition government, claimed he should be paid to choose how poor people spend their money. He was paid by the government to write the report that kicked off the expansion of the basics card to the cashless debit card in 2014. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, there are 16 people seeking work for every job advertised in Australia, which means 15 people need unemployment payments for every job filled, which is over 3 million people. Those people are in the process of losing their basic economic freedom to choose where and how to spend their money. The Indu company charges the government $14,000 per person on the card, up from $10,000 per card in 2014. This is more than many people each receive every year in unemployment benefits. It costs more to administer the card than the money on the card. As Indu has Visa actually doing the financial transactions, this needs an explanation. Essentially, it doubles the current cost of Social Security, paying a private company the extra money instead of putting more food on the table for poor people. If you save money in your Indu account, the interest goes to the company. The government claim the card is to treat people who suffer from addiction to pornography, alcohol, cigarettes, gambling and illegal drugs. And also to help people who can't manage their own money. The scientific evidence shows that financial restriction doesn't help people with addiction. And the card hasn't reduced crime rates. Instead of being applied to people with a medically diagnosed addiction or financial issues, It's being applied to everybody who receives social security payments in trial areas. 
You can't learn to manage your money if you're not allowed to make choices about what to buy and where. The Indu card can still be used to buy lottery tickets, it says on the government's website. People have also found that they can buy pornography, alcohol and cigarettes on a credit card and then pay off that debt with their Indu card. People forced onto the Indu card are only allowed to spend money at the Coles or Woolworths supermarkets. Any other need, like clothing or electricity or a phone contract, will have to be begged by phone from both the Indu company staff as well as government bureaucrats. There's no privacy. If it's not sold at Coles or Woolworths, then you need explicit permission to be allowed to buy it. It's a whitelist. So people can't choose to spend wisely on cheaper items at a discount supermarket like Aldi, or on specials at their local shop, or at markets, or even at a charity or second-hand shop. And definitely not online. PayPal is banned. The technology does allow Indu to let you buy at Coles, but not to buy Coles alcohol. However, strangely, the same technology completely stops you buying anything from eBay because they also sell alcohol, Amazon because they also sell alcohol, or Aldi because they also sell alcohol. Officially, people are allowed 20% of their payments as cash in their bank accounts, while the other 80% is store credit. But the amount of cash paid can be reduced on the whim of the minister. You can ask for up to $200 extra per month to be paid from your Indu account as cash into your bank account, but it's not guaranteed to be approved. Nobody living on social security payments in Australia pays as little as 20% of their income as rent. While the cost of living has doubled in the last 25 years, rent has skyrocketed with the real estate boom. Unemployment payments started at $25 a week below the poverty level in 1994. They're now $125 per week below the poverty level. Basically, people get $40 a day, with most of that spent on rent. The Indu Card's whitelist explicitly does not include rent. Instead, the company sets a housing payment limit. The default housing payment limit is zero dollars. If you want that changed, so you can avoid becoming homeless, then you have to call the government social security agency Centrelink. Unfortunately, they fired all the people who answered the phones and outsourced the government call centre to the Philippines. People now have to wait several days to get their calls answered by someone with minimal training. Getting your housing limit increased enough to pay your rent can take weeks or it can just be denied. If it is accepted, you have to repeat your rent begging call every six months. There are already people who've been forced into homelessness because the Indu companies refuse to increase their housing limit. Despite the card trial having been run for five years, a six-page application form to exit the card only became available a month ago. People have to prove that they can manage their affairs reasonably and responsibly. Out of 5,000 applications so far, only 100 were accepted. It's impossible to prove that you can make good choices about money when you're not allowed to make any choices about money. If you're on less than poverty level payments, 
then of course you have to prioritise which bills to pay and when. And to an outsider, that can look like you're not very responsible with your money. To apply to exit the Indu card, you have to share your private health information, have all your payment decisions second-guessed, your employment and volunteering history, your rental history, your family and relationship history, and all to be provided within 28 days. If Indu try to call you and can't get through to you by phone, then you get just two more phone calls before they cancel your application. Indu can refuse to let you pay your phone bill. You also have to name a friend or family member as a contact person because you can't be trusted. It's the ultimate nanny state. The Department of Human Services has rebranded itself as Services Australia, literally taking the human out of human services. If I'm forced onto the Indu card, I won't be allowed to continue to produce diffusion. Here's an honest government ad about the cashless welfare card. Has your partner cut off access to your money? Do they control what you can and can't buy? Have they told you it's for your own good that you've brought this upon yourself? If so, you might be in an abusive relationship. Unless, of course, it's us doing it to you. In which case, you're on the cashless welfare card. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government, here to introduce the cashless welfare, or as we like to call it, class warfare card. Soon to be rolled out nationally to everyone on income support, the class warfare card will quarantine most of your money so you can't spend it on alcohol drugs or gambling. Don't drink, do drugs or gamble? That's okay. You're trying to access social security, so we want you to feel like a piece of Class Warfare Card. Is it convenient? Not at all. Withdrawing cash at the ATM. Zero dollars. Trying to buy secondhand goods. Zero. Shopping at the market. Garage sale. Tuck shop money for the kids. Nope. Losing your dignity and autonomy. Priceless. Most things you won't be able to buy. For everything else, there's Class Warfare Card. Is it effective? Not according to our own research, which found little evidence that it reduces substance abuse or unemployment. In one trial, it even caused an increase in crime. Will we do it anyway? Of course. Because if this was about helping people get back on their feet, we would have taken the advice of experts who say the answer is investing more in mental health, housing and rehab centres, raising new start. Instead, we took advice from this mining billionaire whose neoliberal brain fart inspired this crime against humanity. And instead of raising new start, we're paying tons of your tax dollars to Inju for each person we put on the card. Inju, the company whose former director happens to be the president of these muppets, who happen to be pushing for the national rollout of the card, which would make Inju even more money. Cool and normal. It's all part of our plan to privatise your social security so profit can be extracted from the tears of poor people. All in a simple card that fits in your pocket. Class warfare card. Painting all welfare recipients as drug addicts so you'll blame them for for being unemployed instead of a system that's not producing enough jobs. We love it when you proles fight each other instead of us. Class Warfare Card. Authorised by the Department for Gradually Enforcing a Cashless Society. That was an honest government ad by The Juice Media. You can subscribe to The Juice Media on YouTube and please support them at patreon.com slash thejuicemedia. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Technology is very powerful. 
But is it fair? Dr Niraj Lal is an ABC Sciency presenter who spoke at the Singularity University Australia Summit about technology and social justice. I began by asking him, what is the intersection of technology and social justice? There are heaps of intersections. They are often answered in a kind of funny way. Often we do the tech and we're like, well, we can do this amazing stuff. And then later on, we're like, oh, that had this consequence and that consequence. And then spend a bit of time trying to figure it out. So there are lots of intersections between them, between equity, between affordability, income, access to technology, access to some of the health and VR and computing and energy technologies that we're hearing about at this summit. It intersects with social justice in a whole bunch of different ways. So plenty of intersections. Because you sometimes hear about the exponential growth. They look at wealth over history and we're producing more wealth and more information than at any other time in history, but it's not very evenly distributed. Yeah, there's a lovely quote from William Gibson. He's a science writer, and in 1993 he wrote, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed. And that's certainly the case. It's certainly the case in my own field. So I work in solar energy, and one billion people around the world don't have access to electricity right now, energy right now. And that's changing, it's changing fast. But the technologies that we are so commonly used to in Australia, it's it's an amazing place, and in the developed world, I guess, um, we take for granted that they're not, they're not actually as evenly distributed as around the world as we perhaps believe. And there is a challenge in that. I don't think we would agree with that. I think as humans, we're kind of fair people. Um, and you're right, the, we've seen the growth of GDP over time and human wealth grow over time. And it is definitely a true thing that we're moving more people out of poverty than ever before. It's an amazing success story. But at the same time, that's happened. More wealth has accumulated in the top end. And instead of a distribution of wealth, which we would perhaps see as some kind of fair distribution, maybe some a bell curve is something kind of that we kind of see as a kind of fair distribution. Uh, what we see is an exponential distribution um, with a very long tail. So most people earning not very much, and then a long tail out to those um, small number of people, but earning uh, earning a whole lot. The Credit Suisse report in 2018 showed that the wealth of the top 147 people in the world owned more wealth than the bottom half of the planet, bottom half of 3.3 billion people. And this is reflective of a system where success begets success, the influences of capital, it's then exponential growth. How fast you grow depends on how big you are. And there are some elements of that being okay. There is value to capital, success does beget success, fortune does favour the brave. But I don't think we would agree with that distribution and we should be able to have a conversation about what kind of distribution we would like in this world. And so you've got this tiny amount of people earning most of the wealth in the world and that's getting a smaller and smaller number. Now we won't go into individuals but what about who are the companies because you would expect maybe there'd be oil companies in there somewhere. Yeah it's a curious question what we find value as humans. There's only limited resources, finite number of finite things in the universe. Uh, Energy, time, matter, space, these are physical fundamental things that are limited in the universe. There's a couple of others, charge, colour, charm for the quantum realm, but the the main ones that we interact with are those four. So it's the energy for a human, in a human context, it's the energy that we can do things with, heat our food, light our homes, drive our cars. Most commonly, traditionally, has been through burning a fuel, coal, oil, gas. It's now moving towards electrical energy, but that's our interaction with energy. Time, it's the 
time that we have alive. It's a finite thing. We're learning in this conference, actually, that one day it's not going to be finite. Maybe we'll live forever. But um, right now it's finite. Most of value to us is the time that we get to spend after we've sorted out our living needs. It's of interest to corporations who are looking at the data of what we do with that time. Matter, the matter that's valuable to us in this universe is air that we breathe, the water we drink, the food that we eat, the resources that we use to, to buy the stuff that we buy. And the fourth limited property of the universe that's relevant to us is space. And for us that's, I guess, property, physical property, on a very small, thin crust of the earth, in temperate latitudes if we can manage it, near bodies of water, close to places of employment. These are the things that we cherish and we value as humans. And it's reflected in what we spend money on. I pulled up a graph of the top 10 companies in the world that buy revenue. It's really curious. I never actually expected it. I thought it would be Amazon and Facebook and Google and the ones that actually were shouted out in the audience. But it's not the top 10. Five of them is energy companies. The top one is Walmart, which is super surprising. But these are the things that we value and that's okay. What's something to be aware of are the linkages between those companies and the revenue and the profit that they make and their interaction with the frameworks by which we govern our society. And there's going to be, there are intersections and some of them are okay, but some of them we should be aware of. And it's a curious thing in Australia that climate change is a really political issue. It's not the case in all countries around the world. And part of the reason I think in Australia is because we are export a whole bunch of fossil fuels. We're the world's number one exporter of coal. We're the world's number one exporter of liquid natural gas. And that is has implications on where our state governments and federal governments get their monies from, um, what they're keen to do. And there's also some really interesting intersections between the donations of those companies and, and our political parties, and not only in money, but also in people. And that's a relationship that we should be aware of, I think. It's not to say that it's bad. This is part of our process currently at the moment. But we should be aware of it, I think, at least. And the other thing you mentioned that says limit of is data. And most people still aren't very aware of just the huge amounts of money that are being made from data and the huge amount of power. So we're all being surveilled now. And people think things haven't changed very much or we've given it up voluntarily, but I don't think it's all that voluntary. No, you're right. It's happened a little bit by stealth. So what I talked about was how do we find out these intersections and interactions and the power structures of our society? It's really tricky to find. But luckily for us, there are some organisations that are devoted to finding them. Uh, That includes our media organisations, that includes the ICAC, IBAC in Australia, and the relevant organisations, maybe one day a federal ICAC. And on a global level, perhaps WikiLeaks is that organisation, that kind of federal ICAC, uh, the global ICAC role. But at the same time, there's a lot of resistance to those organisations. But it's curious, at the same time there's so much resistance, there's been an unprecedented increase in how much surveillance is happening to our own personal lives. And it's something that we're not fully aware of because the services are amazing. Google Maps is incredible. Gmail was great. Facebook is what a lovely tool that we get to share um, content and post with our friends. But what we haven't realised is because those services are most often, more often than not, free, that we are the commodity. Uh, that we are receiving a service and in exchange giving data about ourselves and it's very valuable and that's cool it is a value but we aren't so much aware of it as we could be about what's being taken and we're certainly not being compensated for it and we're certainly not aware of where that data is going and who has access to it lovely slide released by Edward Snowden um, of the NSA. It's happening for all security agencies around the world, how much our information is being shared by the companies that we trust and that we're engaging with the service with, and they're providing it to intelligence agencies, often without a warrant. And that's a real concern. 
Um, even if you've got nothing to hide, it's still a concern because there are some people in society who should have something to hide, those who are exposing the corruption, those who might want to change the system. And we should be able to speak about how we use the internet. Maybe, maybe we can't use it. Maybe we have to have face-to-face conversations and write love letters to each other. And that's okay, but I feel like we should be able to have a conversation about the kind of internet that we want. We also have governments taking over the corporate role. So in China, you have to buy and sell everything through the one government card, which is an app, really. And Australia is trying to introduce the same thing for poor people with the cashless Inju card, where you won't have the freedom to spend your own money and you won't have the privacy of what you're buying. You'll have to ask permission of a government employee to buy anything that's not at a big supermarket. It's, it's certainly worrying. It must be worrying in China. What I think actually is it's worrying in the first instance and then over time I think you forget about it and, then, and it just becomes normal. That's our credit card. We, I mean, I use my PayPass all the bloody time, but that information is sucked up by Visa and PayPal and banks and whatever. I think convenience often just trumps over those thoughts, which is a concern. I think that's why protections need to be hard-baked into our legislation to protect citizens from that. Maybe a Bill of Rights? Maybe a Bill of Rights, certainly. I think that's, that's maybe one place to start. It's, and there's a whole legal issues about where that sits in the Constitution and law, and I don't know, I reckon we could figure it out. There's some smart legal minds out there how to figure that out. And you were talking about how to protest the surveillance. Yeah, it's tricky to, how to protest surveillance. Intelligence agencies are really smart, they're really well-resourced, they've got some great people working for them, and um, if they really want to dig, they can dig. And actually, I support that. I think no one really opposes targeted surveillance. If someone's planning to throw a bomb something, I want, I want them to find out. Uh, but what I don't think we would agree with is the dragnet surveillance, the bulk, collect it all, store it, and then maybe go back and, and find it. And the reason for that is because once we set up those processes, we lead to something which is what's described as turnkey tyranny. So, I mean, I trust our governments of today and the military and the intelligence agencies, and I think most people do, but what we are setting up are data stores that if a government of the future, say, perhaps like the one in China, I'm, I'm not fully across what's going on in China, but perhaps like one in China, if they'd wanted to switch that switch, they could, and that's, that's, it. that's scary, because I think... History has shown us that when people have the power to do something like that, they, they more often than not do do it. So how do we protest against it? Tricky. I think we have to eventually hard-bake it into our legislation, have awareness about it. But there are some other ways we can do it too, perhaps. One idea is uh, using noise in the system. So uh, the justification for bulk surveillance is because well, we might be terrorists and we might be plotting bad things. So they store our information and check if we're saying any bad words. And I don't agree with that. So one way we came up to, to combating that is to a website called noisesignal.org, which generates random string of, of words through the JavaScript um, math random function based on some good quotes about privacy and also a list of catchwords that the US Department of Homeland Security uses. It's a little bit dangerous, it's a little bit out there, but it's perhaps one way of putting our finger up at the dragnet surveillance industry and to say, no, we don't agree with the level of surveillance that's going on. One day, video cameras in our bedrooms might be justified in the name of terror. Maybe everyone in their bedrooms is going to build the bomb in their bedroom because we're not looking there. But I, I think we're able to have the conversation about where we want to draw that line. And we draw ours far from the surveillance state. And noise versus signal is a, is a way to draw that line similarly. And so with all these people trying to influence us, 
how do we know when we see a, a science headline whether it's just somebody's read a press release and misunderstood it or they've just gone for clickbait or, or if it's just wrong? It's an interesting question about who do we trust and what news sources we trust. I think it's changing as we speak. There's some interesting conversations about deep fakes. It, one day it will be indistinguishable what's a fake and what's not. I think there's some interesting science and data tech that could be done around real-time verification. I think there's an interesting question in there, but even still, it'll be very hard to distinguish what's, what's real and what's not. And I think that might have the effect of pushing people towards the trusted news sources once more. So perhaps our trusted news organisations, the, the print media and ABC perhaps. So that's one way. Also maybe the premium for trust might rest on people that we trust more too. Scientists are one of those people who would like to be trusted. I'm science background too. Um, I'd like to be trusted too, but um, I've got my own political bents, and they're all pretty obvious, I think. And I think we need to take any opinion with a grain of salt about the, the kind of political lens that we're viewing things through. How do we do that properly? To be honest, I think the only long-term answer is good, critical and creative thinking within the broader population. And Actually, I think for you and me and all of us around, it's almost too late. I think our minds are already kind of set, you know, like our brains work in certain patterns and we already, like, we have lots of confirmation bias already. So for me, it's helping the critical and creative thinking processes of our young ones. I'm helping them to understand that the world is understandable, that with evidence-based thinking and reason, we can figure out how it works and how to make the world a better place. So did you have a personal solution for that one? Uh, a little bit. Um, I've got a couple. One is uh, I write some kids' books on, about science. Um, so maybe that's one way of sparking the idea that we can learn about our universe. Another is a website that myself and a colleague founded called thenews.org, but with a K. It's a place to find things that we once knew, uh, distilled knowledge and persistent wisdom, because uh, it's sometimes hard to find this information. Often we see a news article to say, hey, there's this new science finding that cancer is prevented by chocolate and another one that says cancer is caused by chocolate or wine or whatever it might be. But if we were going to read 100 words on how to be healthy, what might those words be? And I think it'd be, a lot of it, be some stuff that we've known forever, like just eat good things, drink water, exercise. It's not, it's not brain surgery, but it's hard to find this information. So the news.org uh, represents a, a beta way, I'm still developing it at the moment, but a beta way of, of finding that information. Maybe we should also get critical thinking into the curriculum. Oh, totally. It's, um, actually, I think it's almost more important now than ever before. Today, we live in a content-rich world. We can find information just like that. You Google it, you Wikipedia, and you can verify it in lots of different ways. And it's really great. So we should be able to understand how to find facts, but I don't know if we need to remember them as much as we do. But what we do need more and more is the ability to, to critically think, to critically analyse sources... And also to be creative, I think, too. That's um, more and more becoming our ability as humans. Um, perhaps more as robotics take over our jobs, and it'll give us more time to be creative. And I think we can exercise that muscle a bit more, too. Sort of free people's imaginations. Definitely, yes. Niraj, thank you very much. My pleasure, thank you. That was Niraj Lal, a science presenter who spoke at the Singularity University Australia Summit about technology and social justice. Next week, Ramez Nam talks about exponential energy. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? 
Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.